This episode of Untold Killing contains graphic descriptions of violence, sexual violence and mature themes. Please listen with discretion. My son had to suffer so much, and he did nothing to deserve it. Just because his name was Samir, and he belonged to the Muslim population. Nobody in Potichari had a chance to survive. We had no help. Death was inevitable. Only us women survived, and we're here to tell the tale. Our movement of women have chosen this path, so that the world knows, and then they can judge. Nobody deserves to have this happen to them in the future. The survivors learned that their loved ones had been killed by the Bosnian Serbs. They also learned how they had been killed, and now they wanted those responsible to face justice. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is Untold Killing. I'm Alexandra Bilic. Our lives were changed in that moment. At the end, we were all dead. We are among the living, but our lives ended in 1995. In the previous episode, we told you about an organization founded by the mothers who survived, the mothers of Srebrenica. Both Kada and Kadafa are members and activists in the movement. And this week, we're also talking to the president. I am Monira Subasic. I'm the president of the Mothers of Srebrenica and Jepa Enclaves Association. I have asked to step down a number of times, but the board did not allow it. I've met Monira once before our interview for this podcast, when I visited Srebrenica back in 2013. Both times I could only think about how much she looks like my granny, who also had twinkling eyes and a lovely smile, just like Manira. And Manira, like all the other mothers, has a profound love for Bosnia. The Mothers of Srebrenica is a group of women who have never stopped fighting for the truth to come out about what happened in Srebrenica and also for getting justice for every single one of the thousands of Bosniaks who were executed or murdered in the forests, or killed by shells dropped on Srebrenica, or whose lives were ended at the hands of the Bosnian Serb army in countless other ways. The most important part of our work is to seek truth and justice, to tell the world everything that happened in 1995, that our children were killed in Levi's jeans and Adidas shoes, that the world should know and learn. The genocide happened to us under protection, under the UN flag. I lost 22 close family members. According to our evidence, 10,701 individuals were killed. I'm often told that 8,372 is written on the stone at Potachari. There are three dots on the stone, which means that the number 
is not final. Among the 22 family members that were killed were Munira's husband Hilmo and son Nermin. Even though I have buried two bones, even though I know his gravestone is there, I can't believe that my child is in there. I talk to him often in my dreams. The hope that was lost is different from a mother's feeling. When I have a pleasant dream, and when I dream that he is alive, there is some hope, a dreamy hope that my child is here. It is very important for perpetrators that have committed the genocide to be punished, for their names to be known as perpetrators, just like the first and last names of our children are known as victims. It's for every mother, regardless if she was from Srebrenica or whether she was a Serb, Croat, Bosniak, Jewish or Roma. If she lost her son, her only wish is to find his remains and for the perpetrator to be brought before the court of justice. Manira, just like all the survivors we spoke to, still cannot quite comprehend how anyone could carry out such atrocities, how anyone could hate with such intensity. Whenever I see a perpetrator, and when I look him in the eyes, I ask myself thousands of questions that I have no answers to. Why? How? Especially Mladic, and when his daughter died by suicide with his weapon, was it not enough for him to stop killing our children? And when our children beg them not to kill them, and to let them go, God, do our children appear to them? Can they sleep at night? What kind of life do they have? How do they carry on? How do they deal with it within their four walls when they know the truth? How can they explain it to themselves, to accept it? Often they ask us if we have forgiven. No one has asked us for forgiveness. This means that they do not regret it. If they asked for forgiveness, I can't forgive them, my son, who was one of the most handsome young men in Srebrenica. I can't forgive. My son wanted to live, to have a family, and be educated. When you think about it, they not only killed my son, they killed his wife, his children, his happiness and his existence. I can't forgive that. I do not have the right to. Even if someone forced me to, I do not have the right to. In 1993, early on in the Bosnian War, a tribunal was established by the United Nations. It was a special court in The Hague with a mandate to investigate and prosecute war crimes that were perpetrated in the wars across Yugoslavia in the early 90s. The investigators and prosecutors worked across the Balkans, and after the events of Srebrenica in 1995, they turned their attention to the small eastern Bosnian town and the horrors that took place there. Their task was to answer the questions that the survivors were asking themselves, to achieve the justice they were craving. I'm Peter McCloskey, I'm a, a career prosecutor 
and I was lucky enough to get a job at the ICTY early in its inception in 1996 and uh, was assigned immediately to the Srebrenica investigation team as the legal officer um, inside the team of investigators. Peter is such a charismatic man. He struck me as someone who, in his core, believes in justice, and he has dedicated his life to fighting for it. He's now retired and lives in Italy, which is where he was when we spoke to him via video. Peter's from California, where his first job out of law school was as a public prosecutor. He then started working at the US Department of Justice, where he worked in the Civil Rights Division. For 10 years, he prosecuted cases of police brutality and racial violence all across the United States. And in 1993, news about a historic war tribunal started making waves across the world's legal community. Like the rest of us at the criminal section, we heard about the tribunal being developed in The Hague, the UN War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. In fact, one of my colleagues at the criminal section, Alan Teeger, was seconded by the United States to the tribunal. So we heard firsthand from, from Alan uh, what he was doing. And in 1996, I applied to the tribunal and was lucky enough to get hired. It turns out they were looking for prosecutors with investigative experience because the Office of the Prosecutor had early on decided that the investigative teams should have lawyers injected into the teams, given that there hadn't been anything like this tribunal ever before. The closest we got is from Nuremberg. For Peter personally, working at the ICTY was the natural next step as a prosecutor. The impact of the work doesn't get much bigger than prosecuting war criminals. And while, at the time, he didn't know all that much about the situation in Bosnia specifically, with his experience of prosecuting violent hate crimes in the US, he was the right man for the job. That was what I was trained and, and prepared to do, and, and that's what we did. Now, of course, this is brand new, like I said, and the crime was at a massive scale, and we didn't really know much about what had happened and who had done what in those early years, and so it took a lot of work and a, a luck to get a hold of what really happened and eventually indict people and try them in the courtrooms of The Hague. The investigation began by splitting people up into different teams. The vast majority of the crimes that were clearly identifiable were committed uh, by Serbian uh, participants. So the, we had many more Serbian teams than we did Muslim teams. There was one Muslim team and there were one or two Croat teams. So I started with the Srebrenica team, which was the last team created because, of course, Srebrenica occurred right at the end of the war. Because the situation was so complex, at the start, they spent a lot of time reviewing all the existing information and documentation that had been amassed during the war. Before you go out into the field and start interviewing people and seeing the crime scene, it's pretty important to become as familiar as you can with the vast amount of information. From your headquarters in The Hague, we gathered all the documentary material. So we had video, we had statements of the War Crimes Commission, various NGOs, lots of statements from the Bosnian Muslim police of refugees, war correspondents, uh, all kinds of written material that we really needed to study. 
And then we went on missions to Bosnia, both to the Federation around Tuzla, where most of the refugees from Srebrenica were, and, and then forays into the Bosnian Serb part of the country, the Republika Srpska, which was very dangerous at the time in 1996-1997. It was controlled by NATO troops who arrived in January of 96, and they were responsible <laughs> not for arresting war criminals, unfortunately, but they were responsible for our security. So we were able to go to potential crime scenes with convoys of troops with machine guns and Humvees. And so we traveled around that way to various crime scenes. It didn't work for investigation very well, showing up at a village with six Humvees and 40 soldiers. Uh, so we didn't do any door-to-door -door investigation of talking to Serbs. But we did get to crime scenes, to areas of mass executions, mass graves, and we would study the material for weeks and then go into, into Bosnia for a week or two, three weeks at a time, gather more material, more leads, come back, analyze it, study it, develop a strategy, and go again. And what was your kind of impression when you first got to Bosnia, and how did that feel? <laughs> Arriving in Bosnia for the first time was, of course, a, a massive shock. The closest I'd ever been to anything like that was well, going through Detroit, bad areas of Detroit that had been burned out, and uh, everything was you know, full of shells, holes, and uh, it was really pretty grim. We started off many times in Zagreb, and then we would cross the river to Slavonski Broad, and it was right out of a, a horror movie all the blown up buildings and uh, NATO tanks stationed in various areas, uh, troops everywhere. People were afraid, <laughs> we were afraid. All the buildings in certain areas were blown up, deliberately flattened, many of them by high explosives. And so it was a, a real eye-opener, a real shock. The war had been fought hard there and the Muslim villages had been destroyed. All the mosques in Republic of Srpska were rubble. Probably the scariest times were driving through Republika Srpska and sometimes without escorts. We'd go by burning UN vehicles where crowds would become angry at the local UN folks that were there, the international folks. But thankfully, we never had any, any problem. Once the team got to the crime scenes, it turned out that the process of investigating a war crime is not all that different from, say, investigating a murder case. Like any investigation, we simply divide it into two parts. Um, you know, any detective movie, you know, you go to the, the street corner where the murder occurred and there's a big yellow tape around the six bodies that are there from some gangland. You collect it. Well, we had the problem of having learned about several mass executions from several survivors and we didn't know where they all were. Uh, we had to find out if they existed, whether they in fact happened. And so we took the first couple of years identifying crime scenes and, and investigating them. And a key part of that investigation was identifying the mass graves associated with the mass execution sites and then exhuming them. And that was a massive undertaking. And it turned out we've identified the five major mass execution sites where over a thousand people were killed at each of these mass executions and buried in five enormous graves. It turned out, as we learned within the first couple of years, that 
The Bosnian Serbs decided that they didn't want to allow NATO troops to come into Bosnia to find five graves with over 6,000, 7,000 people in them. So they disturb each of those five graves and scattered the victims' remains into some 50 to 60 smaller graves. And so it became our critical job to find those what we called secondary graves, where the bodies had been hidden. Because unless we could find the large number of bodies, a large number of victims, we, we were not going to be able to effectively prosecute Srebrenica. Uh, so that was the first thing we had to do, establish the crime scenes, uh, investigate what happened there and where the victims were. The second part of the investigation was what we call the linkage part, is linking those responsible for the murders and the forcible transfers to those crimes. Find out who was responsible. Those that were most responsible were our mandate, you know, the, the top folks. And of course, the top person was Milosevic from Serbia, and then Karadzic, Mladic from Bosnia. Just to say, Milosevic was the president of Serbia, who was supporting Republika Srpska throughout the war, financially, politically, and militarily. Peter and the team were tracing the crimes all the way to the top echelons of Serbia, but also Republika Srpska. The creation of secondary mass graves was one of the ways they were able to prove a direct link to the top. We have a signed document from Lodic authorizing fuel for the engineering units that uncovered and exhumed the bodies. It's signed on the 14th of September 1995. So he was directly involved in the execution of that program and of course as well as the decision. One of the Srebrenica investigative team's most important goals was to prove that genocide was carried out in Srebrenica. If they were successful in proving it, it would be the first time in Europe since World War II. I'm sure everyone's heard the word, but what does it actually mean in kind of purely legal terms? And what constitutes a genocide, basically, to someone who wouldn't know the legal terms of it? Well, a simple statute comes down to proving beyond a reasonable doubt that a person or persons had the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. What destroy means is not clearly defined, though it's in its most fundamental form is killing, though it can also be proven with other means. For example, in Rwanda, there was horrendous numbers of rapes done deliberately to inseminate women with the ethnicity of the opposing party, to basically eradicating one ethnicity by birth from another. In order to prove genocide and convict the Bosnian Serb leaders of perpetrating it, the team had to go all the way back to the attack on Srebrenica to understand why, on the 6th of July, the Bosnian Serb army attacked the enclave. We've always divided it into two reasons, two motivations, so to speak. The first was that um, from the beginning of the war, it was the plan and the objective to remove non-Serbs from significant parts of Bosnia and create an all-Serbian state. And the area of eastern Bosnia, known as the Drina River Valley, that contained the Srebrenica enclave and the other enclaves of Zepa and Garajda, this was always an area that the Bosnian Serbs wanted. They wanted the Muslims out, but they couldn't get it. The second 
reason behind it was that in violation of the rules established when the enclave was created, the Bosnian Muslim army did not disarm. So part of the attack on the enclave was based on military necessity to stop the raids and to stop the illegal activity that uh, Orich was, uh, and his army was committing under orders from Sarajevo. Nasser Orich was the commander of the undersupplied leftovers of the Bosniak forces in Srebrenica, who were trying to defend the town from the Bosnian Serb army. Now, it's important to point out that Peter is talking about the legitimacy of the Bosnian Serb attack in strictly legal terms. This is what I spoke about back in episode two. Because the Bosnian Serbs managed to negotiate with the UN the demilitarization of all Bosniaks in Srebrenica, perhaps expecting that the Bosniaks would have to end up defending themselves anyway, they had, in terms of international law, a legal reason to launch an attack on Srebrenica as soon as the Bosniaks directly engaged with the Bosnian Serb army even once. But that still wasn't a good enough excuse. However, when you have two motivations for an attack, one being legitimate and one being illegitimate, it doesn't matter if one of them is legitimate as long as there is a illegitimate objective and motive in the crime. And this, this was something we had dealt with in the Civil Rights Division. Many civil rights crimes had dual motivations, one racial and one non-racial. And as long as one of the motivations was illegal, then it didn't matter that there was another motivation or a legitimate motivation. It took the team years to build the cases, and the first commander who stood trial for genocide in Srebrenica was called Radislav Kostic. He was the man from whom Ratko Mladic took over command of the Srebrenica operation on the 9th of July. The prosecutors successfully proved that Kostic took part in perpetrating a genocide, and he was sentenced to 46 years in prison in 2001. For the first time, genocide was proven in Srebrenica, and it was now a legal fact. To prove genocide, the team had to come up with a unique definition of destruction to justify that the statute applied, just like it was done in the case of the Rwandan genocide. The team wanted to prove that not only did the Bosnian Serbs commit genocide by executing men, but that the executions also had a destructive effect on the women who survived. We got quite a bit of help from our Bosnian Muslim women, and particularly a psychologist, Teofika Ibrahim Efendic, where she very clearly testified to the misery that the women had gone through because they'd lost all their men, their sons, their brothers, their husbands, their fathers, their uncles. And that society was very strongly based on the man. And without the men, the women were at a real loss And as such, Ibrahim Afendic testified they were dying earlier, they were not remarrying, they weren't having children, they were living in misery. And we had several Srebrenica women got up and testified about how awful it was and how they weren't remarrying and how their friends and family were were dying before were getting sick, living in these horrible conditions. I remember Mark Harmon and I, the senior trial attorney that we were trying the case with, basically leaned over and said, this is destruction evidence. Next, the team needed to prove that the other high-ranking commanders committed genocide as well. One of them was Ratko Mladic. 
Yeah, I looked at Modich and I looked into his eyes and it was chilling to see that kind of intense evil emanating from the courtroom. That's after the break. Straight after the war ended, Ratko Mladic, fearing capture by international authorities, went into hiding. It took 16 years to find him, but he was finally arrested in 2011, hiding in a small village in Serbia. It was a huge moment for the prosecution. He was one of the greatest war criminals in Europe since World War II. And whenever a bad guy is arrested, when you actually get the person, you actually arrest the person, and you put together a case, it's a fabulous experience. And we never thought we would get Mladic. And it was going to be, you know, one of the great uh, tragedies of the tribunal. But when Mladic surprisingly showed up, the relief we felt and the joy and the, uh, the celebration. Peter said that, in a way, by evading capture for so long, Mladic gave the team enough time to build an incredibly strong case against him. I made that one reference to the document where he personally signed the document that authorized the fuel for the reburials. And that was part of a massive amount of documentary evidence that we obtained in 1998 when the ICTY did a search of Bosnian Serb army archives in Banja Luka, in Svornik, and Bratanac. We found Directive 7 that laid out the specific intent to take down the enclave. And uh, this document with Modic's signature on it. We had lots of documents that he was involved with showing that he was in command, in control, and involved in the crimes. We also had amazing videos you've seen. In fact, a lot of that was Mladic himself doing his own camera work. They, again, they destroyed the most damning stuff, but the stuff they, they didn't think was so damning, they sold uh, for Deutschmarks uh, to the press. So. Between the documents and the video, we had a tremendous amount. Mladic was there on the ground, but he wasn't the only one whose decisions led to the genocide. Nor was he the only one pursued by the ICTY. There was also Karadzic. Karadzic, as the president, was the supreme commander of all the armed forces of Republic of Srpska. Mladic was the commander of the army, basically. And so Karadzic was Mladic's boss. And the evidence that we uncovered showed very clearly that they were both intimately involved in the decision to murder the able-bodied men of Srebrenica. The trial of Ratko Mladic began in June of 2011, and it ran for over six years at The Hague. Peter McCloskey was one of the prosecutors leading the trial. Mladic was being charged with other war crimes than just the genocide in Srebrenica, but Peter was specifically responsible for proving that part of Mladic's indictment. 
He was the expert on it, and he even had the nickname Mr. Srebrenica. I walked into that courtroom every week for four or five years, and when I saw him sitting there, I just smiled. It was such a great feeling seeing that man in the dock, having to face justice, knowing we had put together in a period of 15 years a rock-solid case that there was no way he was going to escape from. It was um, incredibly satisfying. I looked at Mladic, and I, and I looked into his eyes. Normally, he's, he was smiling kind of with a sort of a stupid, giddy smile, you know, kind of playing the simpleton. And he would smile at me. I would smile back. I think his joker uh, personality was his effort to try to escape uh, responsibility, es- escape the uh, judgment that was upon him. But then there would be a time when a witness was testifying, a particularly critical witness, and he was totally engaged in what that witness was saying, and he's staring at the witness. And you can see the Mladic that we all saw on the video threatening Muslims and threatening the Dutch. The real guy was there, and you could see it from his piercing eyes and the piercing look that he would give. And it was chilling to see that kind of just intense evil emanating from the courtroom. After six long years, the court convened on the 22nd of November to deliver its verdict for Ratko Mladic. Good morning to everyone in and around this courtroom. For the reasons summarized during this hearing, the chamber finds Ratko Mladic guilty as a member of various joint criminal enterprises of the following counts. Count two, genocide. Count three, persecution, a crime against humanity. Count four, extermination. In determining the appropriate sentence to be imposed, the chamber has taken into account the gravity of the crimes of which he has been found guilty. Count six, murder. The crimes rank among the most heinous known to humankind count eight. and include genocide and extermination as a crime against humanity. Count ten. For having committed these crimes, the chamber sentences Mr. Ratko Mladic to life imprisonment. This concludes the delivery of the judgment. The chamber stands adjourned. I think you said that if it had been anything other than a life sentence, you would have been extremely angry. Expand a bit more on that feeling. Well, there there was never a, even a consideration that he would get anything but life. The evidence was so clear you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, multiplied by a thousand for Srebrenica. So uh, it uh, was one of the most, probably the most personally uh, satisfying and and important uh, things that will ever happen to me as a lawyer or a person to be able to take him down. I go see the the mothers of Srebrenica and the our witnesses, our Bosnian witnesses that I 
Unfortunately, I had to call many of them over and over again, our survivors, this wonderful group of men and boys that survived. They, they look at me with joy and thanks in their eyes and, and, and hugs, though I haven't seen them in times of COVID. And, and this is a, a rare thing. You know, prosecutors don't get thanked often. We don't expect to get thanked or appreciated. It's the job you do and you're expected to do. But because we were able to convict so many top Srebrenica people, including Mladic and Karadzic, we have most of those, the representatives of the community and our witnesses uh, with us and, and wrapping their arms around us. And it's a great feeling and uh, something, of course, I'll, I'll take with me to the grave. The verdict was monumental for the ICTY and for the world. But for the survivors, it wasn't as simple as that. Here is Manira again. I was not happy but satisfied that he would face justice and for him to feel what it means for his freedom to be taken from him. I hope that at that moment he remembered how he took the freedom from our children and when he was taking away our husbands. He has everything in The Hague, like a normal person, our children were killed while they were hungry, barefoot, naked, tired and dirty. I mean, they couldn't even use the toilet, not to mention anything else. He has everything. There is a huge difference between his arrest and the killings of our children. But now that he is imprisoned for life, let him see how it is when someone has command over him for the rest of his life. The ICTY was officially closed down in 2017. The tribunal indicted 161 individuals on various war crime counts perpetrated in the Yugoslav Wars. 90 of them were convicted. The indicted were of all different nationalities and ethnicities, but the vast majority of them were of Republika Srpska allegiance. Ratko Mladic is still serving his life sentence today, but he has appealed. His appeal was heard in August 2020 at the UN Tribunal that was set up as a continuation of the ICTY. There hasn't been a verdict on the appeal as of recording this episode in November 2020. Radovan Karadzic, the president of Republika Srpska during the Bosnian War, was also convicted of war crimes, including genocide. He was sentenced to 40 years imprisonment. He then later appealed the verdict, but the appeal was rejected and his sentence increased to life imprisonment. He is still serving his sentence now. In addition to the ICTY's genocide rulings against the individual perpetrators, in 2007, the International Court of Justice also concluded that what happened in Srebrenica in July 1995 amounted to genocide. While the tribunal's efforts and successes were unprecedented in recent history, the survivors still feel that justice hasn't been served. I believe that more perpetrators should have been indicted. And do you think there has been justice for what the Serbs did to you and your family and the people of Srebrenica? No, and there never will be. Not even 1% of those who need to be convicted 
have been convicted. But thank God that the ICTY was there. Otherwise, we would have killed ourselves. One of the reasons the survivors don't feel entirely satisfied is that the process of justice has so far been focused on individual perpetrators, not systemic justice for those whose actions, or inactions, contributed to the genocide. And so Manira, along with the mothers of Srebrenica, took matters into her own hands. We sued the Netherlands, the Ministry of Defence, and it was the first time in the world that a country had sent troops to another country, took responsibility. That means that when other countries send their troops, that send peacekeepers to another country, they will have to be careful so that they don't do what the Dutch did to us in Potocari. The Dutch Supreme Court found the Dutch government to be liable for 10% of the deaths of those Bosniaks who were expelled from the UN base on the 11th of July when they claimed that it was full. This amounted to them being legally responsible for the deaths of 350 victims out of more than 8,000. But the mothers didn't stop at suing the Netherlands. Along with other survivors, they also sued the United Nations for failing to protect the Bosniaks. We sued the United Nations. Can you imagine? We mothers did it. We sued them. And our final word at the court in Strasbourg was that the United Nations are morally responsible, but we were told that they cannot be sued because of impunity. But we were under their protection and genocide was committed. The reason that the UN could not be held legally responsible is because one of its founding tenets is that as long as it acts within its mandate, it cannot be subjected to the national laws of its member states. And the case against the UN was argued together with the case against the Dutch Ministry of Defence in front of the Dutch Supreme Court, which meant that the UN could face no legal repercussions. Essentially, there was no way that the survivors could hold the UN to account. But it's not just responsibility for the genocide itself where the survivors feel that justice hadn't been achieved. They also say that the internationally agreed peace treaty that ended the war and established the new political and governmental arrangement of Bosnia, the Dayton Accords, crippled the country. Just to remind you, the Dayton Peace Accords essentially split the country into two states based on its ethnic makeup. The ethnically cleansed Republika Srpska was allowed to continue existing within Bosnia with its own leadership. The rest of the country, made up of Bosniaks and Bosnian Croats, formed the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Each major ethnic group has its own leader, and the position of president of Bosnia is rotated among them. Basically, it's extremely complicated and, many say, inefficient. Beyond the political arrangement, the continuous existence of Republika Srpska is what really upsets the survivors. Here are Kada's thoughts about it. What is called Republika Srpska today is an entity, but they consider it a state. Can something built on genocide exist like this, and for the whole world to know about it and see it? Have we been duped? Has yet another injustice been done to us after the murders of so many? I tried to understand from Emir Sulegic, a university professor and the director of the Srebrenica Memorial Centre, 
what impact the Dayton Agreement still has on the country to this day. And how has the Dayton Agreement affected Bosnia's government set up today? Oh, come on. I mean, it's like, it's like I need a full term to explain. I'm sorry. That's like, uh, it takes a semester to explain that, okay? Okay. Uh, actually, you know, there's a course at my university that's called, you know, where you spend a week dealing with the Bosnian government and, and political structure. So come on. I mean, you, you're not seriously asking me to tell you that in a podcast. No. Now, uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> you can say anything you like. Uh, right. Well, listen, I mean, it's a complicated country. It's a complicated legal system. It's a complicated political system. And the most important characteristic of our constitution and in our political system is, and I'm serious now, is that it essentially allowed to the former warring parties to continue fighting for the same goals, albeit with different means, parliamentary, political, legal, and so on. But, you know, literally the tanks and the guns of the Yugoslav army and the Croatian army are built in the Bosnian constitution. That's it. And would you say from a historical and academic perspective that Republika Srpska's attempts at ethnic cleansing were successful? I mean, come on, let's be honest. I lived in a town that had 65% Bosniak population in 1992. In 2020, it has a 17% Bosniak population. And the overall number of people living there has decreased only somewhat. So it was the most successful genocide attempted on the European soil after the Holocaust as well. If you look at it in its own terms, it was a success. And how prevalent is genocide denial in today's Bosnia? It's, it's what, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's comprehensive, it's almost omnipresent, and what we're dealing with here are no longer individual acts of denial, as systematic as they may be, but rather a culture of denial that sort of integrates the entire society or elements of the entire society. It has become common that the current representatives of Republika Srpska, those Bosnian Serbs who sympathise with the convicted war criminals and many people in Serbia, continuously deny that genocide ever happened in Srebrenica. Some deny that the killings even happened. Others deny that they were systematically devised by the Bosnian Serb army and conspiracy theories that the international community framed Republika Srpska and the Serb people are common. And there is nothing that the survivors can do about it other than fighting for the truth and sharing their stories. I believe that the world and Europe are unjust to us Bosniaks, Muslims. 25 years later, there is no law which prohibits the denial of genocide. Whenever someone wants to pour salt on our wounds and hearts, they can, without being held accountable. It's horrifying. Genocide denial has become part of the survivors' lives. Monuments are being put up around Bosnia and Serbia dedicated to convicted Bosnian Serb war criminals. The current mayor of Srebrenica, which is now part of Republika Srpska, is a genocide denier himself. I spoke to Nejad, the survivor of the mass execution from episode four, about what it's like to raise children in this sort of environment. Regarding the future of my children, if the denial and uh, such thing continue, uh, the future of my children and uh, all the children in Bosnia is not bright. 
you know, after all those years and obviously a lot of trauma, you decided to move back to Srebrenica. Can you tell us why? When I decided to come to Srebrenica, it was somewhere before 2007 when I definitely returned here. It is difficult to explain that, but I just wanted to come here to show something, but I don't know what. Maybe that I survived and that, that I'm still alive, though they wanted to kill me. And uh, no one could imagine after that, that you can have your family here or your children here. But uh, I have that today here. The survivors find themselves in a difficult situation. They cannot just move on, live a normal life, because still, 25 years on, truth itself about what they lived through is being disputed. And their country is facing the same hate and division that it did at the beginning of the war. But it's beautiful to hear the mothers talk about their children, the next generation. That's the first time in our interviews that they genuinely sounded hopeful. Our children have been some of the best students in Bosnia and the world. We have doctors, engineers and professors now. Our children have suffered enormously. Some of them saw how their father was killed, when their mother was raped and then killed, when their brother was taken. Those children are traumatized. These children are truly an example for the whole world. I have three grandchildren. I want them to have friends who are Serb, Croat, Bosniak, Roma and others and know that there are only good and bad people. We can't tell them that all Serbs are perpetrators. I would like it for young people not to judge people based on their race, religion or the colour of their skin, but to live in harmony and to spread love, knowledge, friendship and freedom. In my mind and in my soul, deep down, the way that I have understood how to go on and the way how I have kept my sanity was I cannot let myself become filled with hate because then there would be no difference between the people who had chased me and me. Hate is a choice. Everything else is justification of your own choice. You have chosen to react to what person has done by hate. Hate is always internal. It comes from within us. Despite this difficult to comprehend, hopeful attitude, the fact remains. These people lost almost everything in Srebrenica. And the grief, the emptiness of it all, will forever be a part of them. As for me, every day, every minute, and second, Srebrenica is in me. I lay down with Srebrenica, and I wake up with Srebrenica. We must not forget. If we forget, it will happen to us again. In order for it not to be forgotten, we have to recount the stories. 
we should not be silent either. Silence is approval. Today, my life is empty. Today, my life is senseless. I have dedicated my life, which is no longer worth any joy, to presenting this truth in public. And to all of you who are interested in hearing these stories, thank you too. Because someone will hear this. Drinking coffee with Sayad was our ritual in our marriage. Nobody would bother us when we drank coffee. He was my husband, companion and friend. In the war, I had no coffee. Now I have coffee. But I have no one to drink it with. Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written, produced and edited by Jake Tajevich. Kate Williams is the producer for Remembering Srebrenica. Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. Our consultant producer is Nadan Hajic. A huge thank you goes to Elmina Kulisic for consulting on the show and for working closely with survivors. And of course, also to the women who provided English voices for Kada, Kadifa and Manira. Kim Sadiq, Abby Carter, and Sean Damon. We also want to thank Dr. David Pettigrew for generously giving us his time and insight. And the biggest thank you of all goes to all those who shared their stories with us, especially the awe-inspiring survivors. Thank you for opening your wounds so that the world can be a better place. The theme music is by Matt Huxley. Before we go, We'd like to ask you for a favor to fill in a quick questionnaire about the show. You can find it at bit.ly forward slash untold pod survey. And if you've enjoyed listening to Untold Killing, please leave us a rating and a review in your podcast app and tell others about the podcast. It will really help get the important story of Srebrenica to more listeners. My name is Alexandra Bilic, and this has been Untold Killing. <laughs>